What you're about to listen to is a podcast I did with my friend Ian about the Russian Revolution of 1905. Yes, I know, it's a bit out of the scope of the Pacific War, but I wanted to branch out a bit more for these audio-style podcasts. And again, a big thanks to all of you who've joined my Patreon. You guys are awesome. But for those of you who have not, please go check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. Over there you get all sorts of goodies, like early access to all my content, voting rights for the next subjects I will tackle, and of course, above all else, exclusive podcasts, of which we have more than 10 now. So please, check it out. Alright, hello everybody, this is the Pacific War Channel, your dutiful host, Craig, and I'm joined here yet again by my friend Ian. How are you? Hello there. Not too bad. How are you doing? Pretty good. And by the title of this episode, I think most of my audience will be a little bit confused since this kind of has, well, I wouldn't say it doesn't have anything to do with the Pacific War. It kind of, it, it, it does have like Japan brushes shoulders with this event and we'll get into that. But uh, the reason why I wanted to make this one is because I just kind of want to branch out and do more interesting general history and, you know, just do other things, see what the audience likes. Every, everything is connected in a sense. And, uh, well, it does also help that I write so goddamn much for other channels like Kings and Generals that I just have all these scripts lying around and all this research and work. And, uh, you know, I think about a month back I wrote this one. So I said, you know, why not try and cover it here with you and just go over what was uh, a really big event. But a lot of people don't know it because of, well, actually, the revolution that happens after it. So uh, this episode is on the Russian Revolution of 1905. The first it, it's not as well, yes, yeah, not as well known. Like when you mention Russian Revolution, everyone immediately jumps to 1917. Yeah, of course, because that's the, the successful, the successful revolution. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, the 1905 revolution was just as important. And I mean, it's kind of like uh, I guess you would call it a boiling point for the Russian population that just finally exploded against the Tsar regime. And uh, they almost were toppled. Well, I mean, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, it, it was the fatal blow to the regime. Mm. Like, they didn't recover. But... The, the days were numbered at that point. Yeah. Writing was on the wall. To start off, you know, you have to go... Honestly, this is a really difficult and complex one to cover. And there's no way, even in a podcast, we could cover all, all the variables present as to why this revolution happened. But uh, if you get any book look up anything about this hell if you, if you pull up a wikipedia page basically most historians want you to start off with the outcome of the crimean war which uh well ian what do you know about the crimean war um oh, it's been a while uh well it's like the first global war in a sense yeah where there were uh well, okay, I can't say the first because uh, there was the the Seven Years' War. That was uh, certainly a global war, but it was the first like global war where technology had advanced in a way to improve the communication. So, like uh, through telegraph and that, so like results of battles and that were given to the public like near immediately, rather than like hearing about it a week or so later. So the public opinion on the war itself. Uh, definitely uh manifested itself faster 
And uh, just, you know, for the audience members who don't know anything about what we're talking about, the uh, the Crimean War was fought in the mid-19th century. So you're looking at the 1850s. Yeah, okay, yeah, I should have uh, no, what exactly it was. <laughs> well, you know, even myself, I'm very ignorant. I mean, of course, I had to learn yeah, about I, the I, story, I am, but... yeah. I, I just remember that they all had colorful uniforms. And... Oh, my God, yeah, no. It was extravagant. It, I mean, yeah. It was uh, one of the first introductions of, uh, like, the Vickers machine gun and still had, like... Uh, irrelevant cavalry charges that just got absolutely massacred like that famous painting of the uh oh yeah uh, the british light cavalry and uh well the combatants so it but, was one it was very one-sided in in essence basically uh for those who don't know europe had these great we'll call them great empires and there was a balance of power that was at work so no one really wanted anybody to control all of europe i mean napoleon had put that fear into everybody with the napoleonic wars so whenever somebody, let's say, got too uppity, the others would usually co like make a coalition to put them down. So this well, time, yeah. you could see that in the Franco-Prussian War. And, of course, yeah. You know, it just carried, uh, continued on. So the Russians were encroaching pretty much everywhere, but the person that they were kind of attacking the most was the ailing Ottoman Empire, because at this point in history, the Ottomans were just—I mean—they were called the sick men of Europe. They were decrepit. They could barely put up a real fight, but. Other empires like Britain and France, they didn't want to see the Ottomans collapse because it would have kind of thrown the whole balance of power out. I mean, if you look at the Balkans, which is always a, a powder keg, it really would yeah. have like set off a lot of stuff. So everyone banded together. Actually, I think even the Italians were. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Italians joined too. And uh, they banded together to just completely destroy the Russians. And in terms of numbers, because Russia always kind of had, I think historically Russia always had the largest land force in almost every battle they fought in the modern history so russia was formidable. numbers yeah yeah russia was formidable but very very backwards like it's extraordinary how backwards the empire was and uh, it was so relevant um not to have too many spoilers but russia famously loses the crimean war and it's very embarrassing for the regime and it's very apparent to the regime that um there was a multitude of reasons as to why they lost the war. And I could have just sum it up as to a lack of modernization, I would say. But it's more yeah. than that. But yeah. So for everybody who's like, okay, this is happening in the 1850s. Uh, we're talking 1905. Like, oh my God, there's a lot of history there. But we're, we're going to get to it. And I, I don't think this is going to be so easy to do chronologically because there's kind of like a lot of variables at play. But when I was writing the script uh, for Kings and Generals, and I hope this comes out before this podcast or else, uh, spoiler alert. But um, when I was doing my research, historians kind of had like a general agreement that there was four long-term problems ailing the Empire and two short-term or what we would call like triggers that kind of like made the revolution explode. So to kind of jump into it, the four long-term triggers could be seen as an agrarian problem, a ethnic religious problem, a urban labor problem, especially the conditions of the workers, and an emerging educative class. So all of these combined mm. with two triggers later on kind of just unleashed all hell upon the Tsar regime. Uh, Ian, if I said well, what... By... Could... Oh, go. Oh, uh, you said urban labor. Uh, so like you're talking about like the emergence of like um, industrial age uh, factories and yeah. such and uh, adapting to that. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're 
not only are we seeing modernization, this is industrialization at the same time. Yeah, I know the they were they were late to the table for that. Oh yeah, they were the. Early. I don't know if you could say they were the latest, but of the big empires, definitely they were yeah. far behind everyone. So uh, we're coming into it. The Crimean War is over, and now we got uh, Tsar Alexander II, and he's looking at you know the conditions of what's going on, and it's abysmal. Now, Russia is officially still a serfdom. So there's oligarchs, like people who own land privately. And then there's the, uh, the Russian government itself, the state, which is the Tsar regime. And uh, even to a lesser point, the church. These three bodies, they own all land. And the rest of the population, we'll call them peasants, although you, you would technically they're, call they're, them serfs. They're, they're, yeah, which is a nice way of calling them slaves. Yeah, no, no, they're definitely slaves. They are... They don't have property of their own, and they're working for these, uh, these people, whether it's the state, the church, or the oligarchs. So, Alexander II, he decides in 1861 that he's going to emancipate the serfs, which is a huge move. But also, it's like, this is extraordinary because most countries don't have serfs. And I mean, for a long time at this point, that's how backwards Russia was. Now, this gives them uh, full rights to citizens. They actually could technically purchase land now. And that kind of was the thinking behind what the Tsar was doing, but it didn't really go the way that he how, wanted it to. How many could afford to? Oh, it, it was. this is where we're going to get to the crux of the problem. So, And there's 20 million, or and there's probably more than 20 million of these serfs that get emancipated. Now, you would think, okay, this is a great thing. They're, they're more free, but where do we go from, from here? So now we're looking at a weird economic situation because... You have all these oligarchs who own private land who depended on the free labor. Even the state depended on the free labor because they didn't even have an income tax system. They just, you know, they taxed the produce the, the serfs had made. So whatever, you know, was the yield of the crop, probably grain because it's Russia, that was the, uh, the good old taxes. So they still needed these serfs to surf, but now they weren't serfs, which sounds weird. <laughs> so yeah, where are you, where you going to get your economy from there? Yeah, so you emancipate them, and what you say is, okay, we're going to give the serfs land. It's the same land that they were already working on. So if it was the oligarchs who owned the land, you know, maybe the oligarchs are in debt. A lot of them were. They sold their land to the state, and the state is just giving it to the serfs. But here's kind of the, you know, the hitch to that. The serfs have to pay this, and they're going to pay it in small installments over the course of 49.5 years. Essentially a life, uh, a life debt. It's basically like just saying you're still a serf. Like, in yeah. essence, you're still a serf, really. Uh, but this didn't improve the, their lives at all. In fact, it, it made it much, much worse. And not just for the serfs, ironically for the, uh, the oligarchs who had been private landowners, because they're losing a lot in this. So these serfs, and now we're just going to call them peasants because uh, technically they're free. They got these things you would call like a redemption payment that they're going to have to pay. And... Uh, it's it's way too much uh, and it, it's pretty incredible and it's uneven too depending on what your nationality is because remember the, the russian empire isn't russians it's, it's actually a ton it's massive yeah it's a yeah. ton of multinational groups like poles and, and such and uh the payments had an incredibly high interest that they were never going to really pay off and the allotted lands for these uh these peasants was quite small and uh, it actually wasn't even in most of the individual peasants' hands. It was in what you would call, like, the village's hands. And in their language... Like co-op? 
Yeah, it is kind of like a co-op. And uh, in their language, it would have been, I don't know if I pronounce anything right in Russian, by the way, uh, called a mir. So it's the village community. And they kind of divvy up these lands to the peasants. Now, the amount of land is also going to decline over time because of the practice of dividing land amongst, amongst you know, successive generations, which you and me, and we're from Quebec, we learned this in high school mm. with the, uh, the seigneurial system of Quebec, of, well, Nouvelle-France. Yeah. You know, you start off Wasn't with... that a masterpiece? Exactly. No one foresaw how that was going to go. So all these people who come over to, uh, to Nouvelle-France, they get like a plot of land, which is a good size in the beginning. But when you have like eight kids and they have eight kids and you're dividing up this land each generation, they don't have enough land to live off of anymore. So yeah. for the Russians, uh, this was kind of like a much faster version of that. And it was very apparent quickly like uh, that it wasn't going to work out. That's my rhubarb. <laughs> yes, that's it's alley property. <laughs> Essentially, that's yeah. what's gonna happen, you know. If anybody it's knows a... that meme, like I'd be surprised. <laughs> oh, it, it's an oldie, but it's an oldie. Yeah. <laughs> so the majority of these peasants, they don't own the land that they're even working on, and it's probably the same land they worked on as serfs to whoever was their master before, and uh, they lack really any incentive to modernize their farms or improve the efficiency. So, you know, the product, the productivity is not getting any better. It's actually going down. Now with this, uh, another big problem is a lot of peasants, you know, they're, they have to make ends meet. So the government is increasing taxes in the form of just, you know, taking their produce. And a lot of these peasants, literally, they just can't even survive anymore because they don't have any food. They have to give everything to the government. So it actually causes a ton of the peasants in the rural sections to uh, migrate to the cities looking for work, which causes an influx of, you know, an urban population, which during the 19th century, I mean, this was pretty normal. This is, you know, the same yeah, time. As in yeah, it's the industrial age. Uh, you yeah. know, the, you go to the cities to, to find work and with all the booming factories, it was somewhat exactly. lucrative. It's just for potential. It's just for the Russians. It's kind of a, a jarring effect because they're so far back, like historically. Yeah, they're they're just starting their industrial age, and they're the factories are popping up too slowly. Yeah, to support that kind of uh, immigration. Yeah, it was a very dire agrarian. It was a, it was an agrarian crisis, basically. What had occurred from all this. And uh, like I said, it wasn't just the peasants who were unhappy. The landowners, they lost a significant portion of their lands. And well, obviously the free labor was gone. And uh, each year, like thousands of these oligarchs, they, uh, they went into debt. So they were forced to either sell off their land, usually to the state, or they would uh, mortgage it, which was kind of like loan sharking it to peasants, I would imagine. By 1905, when the revolution is going to kick off, the oligarchs had basically uh, a third of them had sold off their lands and mortgaged another third. So very few of them still own these uh, properties. It's mostly the state taking uh, all of it almost. Already uh, we got yeah. two classes that are somewhat disenfranchised. And oh, yeah, because that's, what's the, you know, that's what kicks off revolution. They're both blaming the state. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there, there are attempts at land reform uh, at the turn of the century, for the, well, for the 20th century. But... It, nothing's really going well for them. And there's a large inequality of land ownership. 25% uh, of the empire's land is privately owned by about 1.5% of the population, which, you know, go figure, isn't going to, it's not going to stand right with the rest of everybody. And um, it's uh, needless to say, everyone's pretty dissatisfied with the situation. 
Uh, conditions actually get a shit ton worse at the turn of the century. So there's a few famines that hit because of all the problems with the uh, conditions, obviously. And uh, this just leads to more widespread unemployment, people dying, and not good. And that covers kind of just the agrarian variable in this, but there's three more. So another variable, which I mentioned, is the, uh, the ethnic religious one. So during the 19th century and early 20th century, half of the Russian Empire consisted of different ethnic and religious minority groups. And they were, star they were basically stuck in a hierarchical system with uh, the Russian Orthodox Christians being at the top. Right. Everybody yeah. else is below them. Uh, particularly, we're looking at, if you want to like just point fingers, it's uh, Poles and Jews are massively disenfranchised in the system. Like, it's actually incredible. Like, I only had to learn a bit of this because I, was, I wasn't really keen on going too far into the script about it. But basically, it, depending on which province you lived in, laws were completely different. And even the, the taxes, like for, for the Poles, the taxes were hilarious. There was something called a poll tax, for example, <laughs> which that's oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. The Poles have never had a good in history, I don't think. No, not not when it comes to Russia. No. And, uh, you know, the Russians did this, obviously, to, you know, just maintain this Tsar regime with the Russians on top. Uh, alongside, you know, I'm just going to call it kind of this weird racist system that they got going on. Uh, the Russians have this system of Russification. So making, you know, they're imposing their Russian culture upon all the other minority groups. And I mean, th this goes way into the history. I mean, Stalin famously did this uh, against groups like, uh, well, the Ukrainians, for example. You know, outlawing the Ukrainian language in schools, not letting them like read or write in Ukrainian, forcing Russian culture, not letting them watch f films in their language, you know, making everything Russian, like literature and that. And uh, in the 19th century, this was very much what the Russians were doing. Uh, they didn't allow, for example, uh, Poles to learn their language or do cultural things in their schools and such. So it was pretty hardcore, I'd say, for an empire to do. And uh, there's going to be some hard feelings there, definitely down the road. And so you can imagine the groups that are inferior or like status-wise that are at the bottom of the echelon, uh, they're going to form some conflicts. And there are a lot of rebellions that actually break out in the 19th century. Uh, the Russian government responds by just continuing its russification efforts to try and reduce future rebellions. You know, the idea is you just keep making people Russian and they'll stop screwing around. Doesn't really work. Yeah, ge generations down the line, they'll hold no animosity. Well, you know, there is yeah. some truth to it, though. It does, like, I don't, I, to, to point it, to make an example, technically, you could say the People's Republic of China has succeeded somewhat in this. Uh, though, <laughs> you could also say there's brutal uh, brutality upon certain groups like it, the Uyghur Muslims. Of, of course, people are going you know, with the state looming over them, but if, let's just say, they had, like, the privilege, the, the, the opportunity to be uh, expressive. Like, they would absolutely say they, they still hold on to their pre-communist culture. Yeah, exactly. Like, we see that with a lot of Chinese that emigrate outside of uh, the CCP uh, state. Oh, well, of course. And uh, so for the Russians, you can imagine discrimination was rampant, uh, for example, when it comes to politics, and I don't want to go too far into this because the, the political situation in Russia is actually super bizarre. Uh, there was, I think people have heard of Dumas. So you can think of this as kind of like, 
I don't even want to call it it's like uh, at a almost like at a provincial level. It's a political seat. It's almost you. Almost everybody who's involved in this are oligarchs, so they're the higher echelon. They're not really the peasants, but the Dumas are kind of effective at figuring out administrative things like funding and doing this and that on a on a local level. But like on, the the monarch the monarchy still has absolute pull, right? Yeah, so you could think you could think of the Russian government system as three tiers. You have the Fed, like the Tsar regime, that does like the big decisions. You know, uh, anything that has to do with uh, foreign relations and you know going to war, national goals and things, yeah, things on a national level. Yeah. The Duma is like the goings on of the province. But what's special about Russia is the Duma is kind of I don't want to say it's superseded, but there's like a not even an official thing. It's this this, this thing. It's about the village. So. The Russian town or village, they do their own kind of civilian justice system, right? And the ongoings of what's happening in these little villages, that's really to their own thing. They have like unelected officials, like strong men who just take over. And that's where the kind of the real power lies. But again, this is at a village level. So as long as all the villages don't just combine, you know. They, they have a level of uh, lawmaking at the village level? Unofficial. Like, like, not just, you know, bylaws, like, okay, you can't make noise after 11 sort of thing, but like. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, uh, well, we're going to go get into it a bit. The Russian government does try to give them technically a political voice, but they do it in such a way that no matter what, the oligarch, like the 1% class, always has a veto or the last say. So it doesn't really matter. The, the peasants, as we'll call them, who make up the majority of the population of Russia, they'll never really have representation. The plebs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's like, you know, the Roman yeah. Republic. The, yeah, well, uh, I mean, yeah, but the Roman Republic uh, swayed off a mass revolution by creating the tribune of the plebs. Exactly, but that also caused the downfall. That caused the downfall of the Republic, too. You have to remember that. <laughs> yeah, well, once the tribune of the plebs had more power than uh, the emperor, like... Yeah. But uh, not to go down that rabbit hole, because I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, lo I do love the... the I... I Person, I know that is a fun topic. Though. A lot of people the, don't share the, the this. A lot of people love the Roman Empire. I like the Roman Republic because I find it's interesting how it fell. Yeah. But, uh, but anyways, back to the story at hand. There was very little means for for like political participation for the plebs, as we would call them. Uh, hmm. Freedom of speech was non-existent, obviously. Thus, alongside the Emancipation Law, Alexander. Um, the Tsar at the time, he established something else. So he called it, and I hope I pronounced this right, Zemst, uh, Zemstvost, Zemstvost. And this happened in 1864. So this is kind of a new political system. And uh, I got some, a little bit of notes here as to who could participate. So when Alexander II instituted these bodies, the Zemstvost, it was for, you know, provinces. And uh, some provinces didn't get them. So that would actually apply to the Poles, for example. They were, <laughs> the Poles always get screwed over. They didn't get to have these. And there was uh, five types of members that were a part of this. The first type, who had the most power, were very large landowners, so the oligarchs. And then after them, it was small landowners. Then it was the wealthy people in the towns. Then it was the less wealthy people, but in urban settings. And at the very end were peasants. And they even saying that they were part of this it's like they didn't have voting rights we'll call it they didn't if people were asking your opinions you know maybe they'll take it as advisement i'd say so this just for the record we heard exactly yeah. 
And uh, the purpose of this was actually for local self-governance. So it was a, an attempt to try and get whatever was going on in these villages to more modernize themselves, be a little bit bigger, and to establish something more within the whole empire. Uh, doesn't it, it, it was a hit or a miss based off of my research as to how it worked. Basically, tragically, I think everything the Russians did at this point, and especially Alexander II, it was progressive. Um, it was the right direction, but I think it came too late for the empire. Like they were too far behind in modernity, and it was going to be violent regardless. So um, wherever there was non-Russians, uh, so I keep using the Poles, for example, uh, it could also be people who are Catholic uh, because this is an Orthodox uh, run, you know, regime. Uh, they would receive, you know, less of these emptos, less uh, political participation. They'd even get less funding uh, for things like schools and such. It's pretty incredible. Uh, and I even have a little note here. The Poles were prohibited from government positions and the Poles were required to pay 150 million rubles in tribute to the imperial treasury annually. So yeah, yeah the <laughs> Poles keep getting screwed. As the Americans like to say, no taxation without representation. representation. <laughs> what did that lead to? Yeah. Uh, by 1890, the peasants and the minority groups were deprived of the right to elect. So there was some changes to the political scene at the end. So they even went back a bit. So they didn't get their rights to elect anybody. And basically, yeah, the state and the gentry class were just dominating everything politically. Nothing really had changed in that. In that, yeah, it, was, it was a facade, making it seem like the peasants had any say in anything. It's an illusion. Yeah. Now, the third long-term thing that's going on here, we alluded to, was with all these problems out in the countryside, and all these people entering the cities, we had kind of like this this new class, this urban working class. And we're talking about the Industrial Revolution here for Russia. Um, the Russian government kind of had a laissez-faire economic policy. They just, you know, I guess, wanted to see what would happen. And uh, there was a lot of hit or misses. So the international price of grain, and grain being kind of the, the staple of Russia, how it's making its money, it decreased at the same time. Not good for their economy. Their national debt went up. And then they had to import to uh, feed their population because of famines and stuff. While that's going on, they also want to, you know, perform an industrial, you know, an industrial revolution because the whole point of this is to modernize. And they are very far behind when it comes to industrialization. So uh, during the 1890s, the Minister of Finance, Sergei White, he ushered in the industrialization program. And, you know, you can look at this for the 19th century. Uh, it's like railroad construction was probably the biggest deal. And for Russia, I mean, famously, they're building the Trans-Siberian Railway at this time, which required an, a colossal amount of time and manpower. Yeah. But in order to do such a project, as you can imagine, uh, they had to increase the, uh, the taxes. And the taxes are felt by who other than the peasants. And there's going to be... Yeah, because you know, yeah. a project like that, it's, it's state-funded. If, if done well, it can trigger like an economic boom in the area and you think where they're they're building these rails like rail towns pop up jobs are like industries are created in the area if done responsibly for sure country like canada we had the hmm. we, had, we had a pretty similar canada america like as those uh rail lines went down like yeah, yeah prospectors go out and find uh mining sites in the vicinity uh lumber yards uh 
but uh, so, yeah, there's so many opportunities. When you look at uh, like, let's take us for example, Canadians and the Americans too. We built these great railways, and a lot of people went west. So you know, we didn't have large populations going out west. For the Russians, it was the opposite. So they were building these this enormous railway going east into Siberia. Actually, it'll go <laughs> all the way to Vladivostok at some point. But you're not seeing like a huge desire of people to live out. And I'm sorry to say it, these wastelands of Siberia. So it's kind yeah, of a different I mean, situation. <laughs> hey, you want to go live in Siberia for, uh, you know, minus 50 and really not get paid for it? Yeah, although some people do actually live even in the borderlands with China and stuff. Like very, very harsh uh, climate and all that. But uh, anyway, well, there's a lot of resources out there, but the oligarchs like swallow those up right away and like. I imagine oh, yeah. what they're paying their uh, the the working class to go out there to to, to work. It's abysmal. Yeah, and I mean, not once, meeting the conditions. Once the Russians figure out that oil is going to be a big thing, I mean, the Russians are actually the first to uh, start building their warships using oil. They were the first to do that because they realized how you know how much of an advantage it'll be. But that's not going to help the peasants, <laughs> not mm. at all. So the Russians are seeing high protective tariffs; they're getting raised. Their exports are increasing good but foreign investment isn't going as far as it can uh they managed to stabilize their currency and i think i don't know what year but they do join the gold standard i believe at the end of the 19th century and uh, their industry grows about eight percent per year which is you know i don't think it's insane compared to other countries like uh there's a lot of countries in the in the industrial age like you could say that's like considerably low yeah like but, you look at uh, England, France, uh, Prussia at the time, like they just absolutely uh, became behemoths during that time. Oh, especially if you look at a, like a nation like Britain. Growing like 30 to 40% a year sometimes. Yeah, but the, the problem with Russia, Russia is it's a colossal empire, but it doesn't have like many, it, it, does, it almost doesn't have any colonies overseas. It doesn't have the same situation as like a France or Britain when it comes to that, who are literally depleting other countries of resources. I mean, the Russian empire is depleting resources of its own kind of internal structure. It's not the same thing, but to achieve all of this growth, you know, they just keep raising taxes on the population, causing more and more people into, you know, poverty. They have to go to towns to try and find jobs. And it's pretty hard. I have a little statistic here. What between 1890 to 1910, St. Petersburg population alone grew from 1 million to 1.9 million. That's some staggering number there. It's basically doubling. 20 years. That's yeah. That's a that's a population yeah. boom. So uh, this led to an increase in the urban working class. Now, as we all know, the Industrial Revolution is accompanied by some of the worst working conditions in history, and uh, apparently. For the Russian urban workers, it was much worse than their counterparts anywhere else in the world. So they were working uh, 11 hours, 11 hour days. 11 hours isn't so bad. Like I, I'm coming from, uh, you know, a lifetime in kitchens and 11 hour days <laughs> yeah. that could be considered part time. Uh, yeah. That's just something about professional kitchens. It's still slave labor. That's why we have to have a revolution now. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, and obviously they had exceedingly low wages compared to the rest of Europe. So people in America and uh, other Europeans are basically making much more money than the Russians. Uh, the working conditions are extremely unsafe. Uh, a lot of people are getting injured and dying. 
And uh, because of the enormous boom of people moving into the cities, the housing situation is completely screwed up. Like it's unsanitary. There's too many people cramped into like single rooms and such. So it, it's it's miserable. And uh, the uh, rush, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine then, uh, like at this time, like okay, all the uh, the serfs are moving into the cities. Uh, you have landlords uh, from the gentry class like erecting these like really haphazard shoddy like dare i say shanty towns or that uh, oh yeah you know uh probably charging far too much for uh i guess would they be renting or would they own the property i i can't imagine them owning the property it's possible to own property but the likelihood is one it, percent yeah slim. yeah, yeah the, the price for it would be like exceedingly high so yeah you would have like the the landlords, uh, the gentry class, like exploiting the uh, the incoming uh, serfs in that regard. Yeah, and uh, something I don't know if I, I don't know myself if this was usual or typical for other countries in Europe. I, I imagine it kind of was, but employers would fine people, so any of their workers that did anything, and they would you know take it away from their payment. So any infractions basically that could happen, like I say, there's an accident at work. I don't know, someone doesn't show up for 11 hours he shows up for 10 who knows but they're basically finding them for such things and uh yeah that didn't sit well with this new urban working class who are probably struggling to survive and uh they're they're forbid from organizing unions um they're forbid from performing strikes or causing you know further discontent so they're arrested further, they... yeah further discontent right there like that could just be talking with your employees uh with their their co-workers oh yeah yeah, yeah. the the like, speech you get off your shift and just like uh it, it's not like in in england where you could just go to the the pub down the street and you know rant about your day like i imagine here like any sense of that would be shut down right away arrested uh uh, like you said, find. Oh, Dracon. It's it's absolutely draconian. Yeah, draconian. Yeah, yeah, keeping everyone down. Yeah. So then we come to another variable, and this one is kind of a new type of educated class. So again, it goes back to Tsar Alexander II after the Crimean War. He looks at everything and he says, "Okay, we need to modernize the education system because things just didn't work out." Uh, some of the things he does is he does open up some education to women uh, for secondary schools. I don't, I do not believe for universities and uh, for universities, um, the requirements or the, the pre yeah, the requirements to enter university. I don't even quite remember how it worked, but I think you had to have been in the military for a certain amount of time. Uh, and there was other things like there's, it, of course it costs money, but um, you also had to wear a uniform, which seems to be a, very big deal and all the research i did uh i guess people couldn't afford these and um anyways needless to say alexander ii he basically opens up the universities more to the general population so a lot of the restrictions are gone um enrollment explodes a lot of people start going to university uh but he simultaneously looks at you know the education curriculum and at first he kind of allows things to be like a little bit loosey-goosey but the Russification, like I was mentioning before, it kind of ramps up by the end of the 19th century. But with this educated class growing, you know, you have this kind of this group of intellectuals that are yeah. going to spread. And when you get intellectuals and you start getting like student organizations, you got put them in a room together. Yeah, they're going to yeah. talk. Newspapers, journals, public lectures, you know, it's 
got Jordan Peterson going around like <laughs> crying and stuff, telling people they're lobsters. <laughs> well, well, whenever you have like you know the young people like that, like they get yeah. together and they're gonna start talking about ideas. Oh, you have the you're you're thinking similar to myself. Like it's yeah. By the way, I'm making that joke. I actually closet love Jordan Peterson. I, I <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. I don't know the Jordan Peterson lobster story what is that oh my i'm not gonna get it uh, he he was making like kind of this allegory for like how human beings are basically lobsters and how we act towards anyway anyways i'm not gonna get into it well, but... in fact humans are lobsters and, <laughs> and, and we go very well with garlic butter <laughs> sorry that's my jordan peter oh man we're not we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna take this in the direction of come town which it was definitely going there but um <laughs> So, uh, you know, these students are organizing, they're starting to, at the same time, this is the 19th century, you got the, the names of Karl's Mar Karl Marx is starting to come up at the end half of the 19th century. So there's, there's like a lot of radical ideas going everywhere. And the students, of course, are going to latch on to anything. And the students do become more radical. And they, they start to do widespread protests. Now, the students start to become pretty passionate about the problems ailing their empire particularly the problems facing the urban class and the peasants. And this really is starting to undermine the Tsar regime. They are demanding freedoms, because, I mean, they have none, really. It's incredible. They don't even have freedom of speech at this point. And uh, this drives a lot of these students to become revolutionaries later. Now, they're a small part of the population. I mean, there is a large enrollment, but it's still a small part of the population overall. Uh, but they're going to make up most of the political offenders for quite a while. The government starts to freak out, as one would, and they start constricting, you know, all the studies. Again, it comes back to russification. They make everything that they study about, you know, orthodox religion, being a patriot to your nation, the classical language of Russian, mathematics and such. And they, they really strike down anything else than that. And uh, they expel, they force students into military service, and they'll even act, you know, they'll even exile radical students and such. They'll arrest anybody who's a rabble-rouser and stuff. Now, those were the four long-term kind of problems. There's definitely others out there. But uh, now we're coming into when the, when the issues start to really arise. So this has been brewing around for quite some time. And now we've got, we'll call it angry students, angry urban workers, and angry peasants. Now, the students, they're joining... That's a large yeah. part of the society. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. your farmers, your... Uh, your students, your educated uh, class. Uh, oh yeah. Your your working class. Wh what do you have left after that? You have the oligarchs and the tsar himself, <laughs> and uh, the the religious class as well. Yeah, the uh, the religious. I'm sure the the Orthodox Church like had a hold. Oh, the Orthodox Church like allied itself. To the Tsar, much in the same sense that we see it, you know, everywhere else uh, in the world. There, you know, the church and government always went hand in hand until it doesn't, yeah. and then you then you see real problems, like during the Crusades, for example. But um, the students they start, you know, they're starting to utilize the political bodies because while the students might not be oligarchs and they can't go up to the big boy leagues, there's these new zemtvos that have been created. So this kind of like mid tier political system, and the students really get into it. And they start creating like brand new political parties, which I'm definitely not going to go too far into. But you're going to see like the emergence of base, what we would call today uh, liberals, 
um, progressives and radicals, basically. And most of them have shared ideals as to what they want. And obviously they want like some civil liberties, you know, like some political mm. freedoms and such. And above all else, they want an elected national body to basically change the regime. <clears throat> so we're going to come up to like October of 1904. There's an underground political movement that's created called the Union of Liberation. And uh, they're pressing basically for the liquidation of all of the aristocrats and all that in the country in the in the empire. Sorry. They want to establish a constitutional form of government, which I mean, looking at how all the countries emerged in the 19th century, this is what most do. Uh, they want self-determination for all their nationalities because Russia is a multinational state. Yeah, like most of the successful monarchies at this time are uh, constitutional uh, uh, monarchies. In some way or another, though, you know, they all have their their little play on things. Like, for example, the Prussian version is military. It's more military based. You got the British West Westminster House system, which I guess is the better one of them. Uh, personally, the United States, I think definitely was the best um the way that they went about with the congress and the senate and everything until now you know when money really got involved in politics I, I, I was just waiting for you to say the president is king <laughs> the president is king. Yeah. It, no three-tier system yeah no like the idea of the united states system is is great it's just yeah because they created a uh, checks and balances that the president can't supersede the uh the elected Congress or the elected Senate and the Senate's can't supersede the president and the elected yeah. Congress and, and vice versa. And that. Although unfortunately today, as we've seen the presidency is the presidency of the United States has received so much more executive powers that that's actually the problem. It, it's too much now. And now, I mean, if you're looking right now at uh, the current president of the United States, Biden, he's doing a lot of things that uh, should warrant Congress or the Senate's approval. Like, giving certain military aid to places but he's doing it using executive powers and that's not the original and idea if you of the cannot if you cannot veto an executive decision that's yeah. dangerous yeah and that, that's just not what the you know the forefathers of the united states thought and i'll just mention to the audience we are not american <laughs> yeah, no, not Asian. to go too far into yeah. it and we'll just like start rambling about like it, it's the broken uh bipartisan system oh today yes. so, like okay like the president has too much executive power uh, and if the elected Congress is uh, from the other party, they're always gonna like try to uh, undermine the anything. Yeah, the yeah. yeah, undermine the president. The president's gonna try to undermine everything the Congress is putting forward. And then you have the Senate, who's supposed to be the balance to that. But if they're swinging on one side of the party, then you know, it's just became uh, it's too much of a two-party system. It's so flawed. Yeah, yeah bring no. back the Moose Party. Oh yeah, of course, man. If <laughs> Hey, you know what? We're 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 at a point in time. We'll finish with this. We're at a point in time in history where a third party could possibly win. It is possible. <laughs> like it's a long shot, but you know, you never know. Well, there's there's Kennedy that's coming up, but he's yeah. an independent. He's not necessarily third party. Well, yeah, that's that's what is a third party. Is he's an independent? I mean, if he were to get uh, popular votes enough to get on stage i guess you call it a third party well he, i don't know if you yeah. uh, you're right maybe he's oh. not officially a third party but huh. late you know 19th century politics and uh late 19th century politics america like super super fascinating oh I mean, it's a lot uh, different yeah great figures a... coming out of it yeah teddy roosevelt it's 
Oh yeah, I love Teddy. It's exciting. Uh, anyways, yeah, off uh, topic here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, these students, you know, they want constitutional form of government, self determination for all nationalities, uh, for economic and social reforms because it's still really backwards. Their 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 empire. Have, have they begun um, congregating with like the working class and the uh, the rural class at this time? Yes. Yeah, so like, yeah. As soon as as soon as you mix those two elements together, like okay, like that's how like the fire will spread. Yeah, that's the dangerous cocktail. What ends up, what what's kind of an underlying theme that I didn't even get to do in the script that'll come out for Kings and Generals is the relationship of bringing the village to urban areas. So you have these peasants that have this unofficial political system in their villages. And as people are forced to leave and to go into these urban cities, they bring that, that like idea with them. And it basically, it, it infects all the urban workers because a lot of them, you know, they grew up in cities or whatever. They don't know what this is. And it kind of makes their mentality change. And they see different ways of like how the world could work. And that, that, that is a, a weird effect on changing the, the, the population. But uh, basically, n never before has so many citizens, you know, especially from the educated class, kind of like vented their unhappiness to the state. So the state is seeing all these reports from these like little governmental bodies. And a civil unrest starts to, you know, really come forward. So you're seeing students protesting, but you're also seeing some strikes and even assassinations. So like by 1885, they reach this kind of high point where 4,000 workers at this cotton mill in Morozan, they go on strike. And uh, they're asking the government to improve working conditions. It's basically, you know, they, they specifically, they want something that basically it's like a factory inspector to be hired so that he can do something to help them from their employers who are basically abusing them. And uh, I have a little note here saying they, uh, they fought to prohibit the employment of children under 12. <laughs> so, you know, it's like the old, the children yearn for the mines kind of thing here. Well, yeah, even at this time, like throughout the world, like children, a lot of children under 12 are, are oh, working. Yeah. Like that was uh, very common in the industrial age. Oh, it's certainly it was coal, yeah. coal mine children. Yep. And now they're mining in Minecraft. As, <laughs> as they said, the children yearn for the mines. <laughs> but, yeah, they, uh, went from, they went from the coal mines to TikTok. Yeah. Between 1886 and 1894, the annual average number of strikes was something like 33. Now between 1895 and 1904, that increases, <clears throat> sorry, that increases to 176. It's going up almost like five times. It's a lot. And not only are the strikes increasing, but also the degree of their sophistication <coughs> Uh, they're getting a lot more unified and they're they're being much they're getting a lot more effective at what they're doing. So the strike movement reached its highest point in 1903 when 138,877 workers, my notes say here, engaged in over 550 work stoppages. That's some serious that's numbers. That's uh, it's more than a few truckers in Ottawa, <laughs> you know. In uh in April of 1902, the Minister of the Interior, Dmitry Sipyagin, sorry if I mispronounced that, uh, he's assassinated and he's replaced by a guy called, well, that's a hard one, Vyacheslav von Pliv, who's assassinated in July of 1904. And then he's replaced by Pyotr Dmitrievich, oh my God, Sovietopolk Mirisky. I am sorry, Russian what, listeners. Was he assassinated also? I think he does get killed later. <laughs> oh my, geez, that position sounds like a death sentence. Oh, yeah, I think Alexander II was killed, too. 
Yeah, uh, oh, there's a lot of assassinations, especially the the family members of the uh, the Tsar regime. They're they're, I mean, until obviously in the revolution, they're all killed off, but a lot of them get picked off one by one. Uh, so we're in December. No, 19- not Anastasia. Oh my God, I remember that cartoon. <laughs> God, yeah. Oh, Disney. That's completely disproven. I'm pretty sure right? she. Yeah. She, yeah. Oh, it's been absolutely disproven that yeah she was she was with the family. Yeah. But yeah. like that uh, the legend came up, you know, for the I, I guess you, it was the whites in Russia. Yeah. Needed something to hold on to. Of course, I mean the the Russian Civil War. They they were grasping at straws. They didn't. They really didn't think the Red Army would be so effective. It's it's actually very surprising. And you when you learn about the Civil War, the rest of the world aided the White yeah, Army. Oh yeah, the, the the amount of aid that the Whites got and like modern arms and stuff. Yeah, it's 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 insane that the Red Army won the way they did. But yeah, no one thought were. the Red no one thought the Red Army was going to be successful. Yep. So on December the thirteenth of nineteen oh four, the Duma of Moscow. They, uh, they pass a failed resolution demanding the creation of an elected national legislature. They also wanted universal suffrage and some other basic civil liberties. So that doesn't pass, obviously, because the oligarchs don't want it to. So Tsar Nicholas II, so we got big boy Nicholas II now, one of arguably the dumbest stars in history. Uh, he responds on Christmas of 1904 by issuing a manifesto promising, and look, the key words here is, this is like a verbal thing, he's promising to meet the majority of their demands. But he didn't make any mention of creating a representative national legislature. So obviously he doesn't intend to do so. Because it kind of thwarts the idea of being the Tsar, you know. Meanwhile, the liberation of unions helps create another group called the Union of Unions, which is the most unoriginal name I've heard of. And they do this in May of 1905. King of Kings. Yeah, pretty much. So this is uh, interesting because it's a political union but it's actually it's linking the liberals and the and the revolutionaries to each other so you're getting the radicals involved with these political liberal types so a group who's you know trying to do things through a political means not violent let's say now they're fully endorsing the radicals who are really willing to use violence and who want to overthrow the the empire and of course this is going to you know see a lot more strikes and all sorts of violence now, back in March of 1902, uh, there was railway workers who also went on strike, which that's a huge deal during this time because they're building the, the Trans-Siberian Railway. And uh, they're striking over pay disputes, but uh, they're soon joined by all the other trades in the urban area. And this creates this really large strike called the Rostov Strike on November the 2nd of the 26th in 1902. This is uh, this meets a lot of arrests, expulsions, and violence. So there's all, quite a few people are killed and injured during this and this just keeps inspiring more general strikes so basically 1902 until the revolution you're just seeing crazy amounts of worker strikes and violence going on and uh, it's starting to really brew over in st petersburg now in the countryside the peasants um, don't have the same kind of situation as these urban guys right so for the peasants, they're resorting to just spontaneous violence against uh, the landowners, basically. So, you know, they're just burning property, demanding more land, more rights and such. And I don't want to say that the peasants are irrelevant. Of course, they're relevant, but they don't have the same political means, basically. And, uh, you know, I guess one of the biggest arguments from the peasants is they want to lower taxes because it's killing them. Now, uh, the... 
students and this new political class, they also, you know, they, they take notice of the peasants and they try and help them out. And they do create another union, which is the All Russian Peasant Union, which just kind of channels the peasants into this greater movement that's really starting to mold. Mm. Now, I think I said at the beginning of the podcast, this does kind of have to do with the Pacific War. And what I mean by that is the Russo-Japanese War. Yeah, right around the corner. Yeah, so the Russo-Japanese War is breaking out in 1904, and it'll go on to 1905. But there's a whole other story here where the Russians in Manchuria and the Japanese have basically been at each other's throats for quite some time. We're, we're starting in the 1890s with the first Sino-Japanese War. The Russians got involved a little bit there. And uh, when the Russo-Japanese War breaks out, uh, the Russians don't win a single battle upon the land or sea. It's... <coughs> an absolutely humiliating war for russia they yeah, remember are, this is a, a an empire at the time and yeah. uh, you know massive empires like that aren't supposed to lose to emerging nations such as uh, japan not not to mention the racial effect of this because this is a, a great white nation as they would have seen it at the time and they had uh, well there was a lot of racism going on against asians like the yellow peril and such, which actually is a, a, a large reason as to why this war happens. And uh, the Russians, you know, I mean, from the Tsar's perspective, he didn't think that the, uh, the Japanese were capable of taking on a European power like them. It, uh, it was shocking the entire world when the Japanese were pulling these victories. Now, on January the 2nd of 1905, Port Arthur falls, and uh, with it, the first Pacific Squadron. So this is a really big deal for the Russians. It was absolutely humiliating. And uh, after that, it's just more and more losses. And eventually the land campaign uh, sees like a climatic battle at Mukden. And with it, basically Russia, they haven't lost the war per se, but they've lost face completely. Yeah, especially amongst their own people. Like they're starting to hear about all the the defeats and that at the hands of the Japanese. It's a lot to take in. Yeah. And we're talking about these when, when you're yeah. hearing only about defeats, like how do you, uh, like, how do you continue on? And like, is it yeah. worth continuing the war? And why is there a war going on in a part of the world that doesn't benefit Russia? So all these normal people, the peasants, the urban class, the students, they're reading about this war. From their point of view, this is completely useless. Like, why are we even tossing any money into this war? Because Russia is going bankrupt uh, because of this war. It doesn't make sense to them. Why does Russia even have any interest in Manchuria, for example, and such? They don't understand it. And uh, Russia will eventually lose uh, another sea battle. It's the legendary battle of Tsushima. And basically, most of the entire Russian navy has been destroyed because they had to send two other squadrons from the Baltic yeah. Sea all the way over. Yeah, not, not only losing their Pacific fleet, but yeah, their, yeah. Uh, their Baltic fleet as well. The death toll is absolutely insane. There's like maybe Russia's had about 50,000 deaths, 120,000 casualties. Nobody has ever, no one's ever seen this. This is basically the appetizer to World War One. It's terrifying for the Russians. They, they can't, the population can't believe this. Uh, alongside the loss of all the life, the empire is verging bankruptcy. So Russia came into the war with like 100 million pounds of gold. And uh, a lot more than Japan did, by the way. Uh, but they had to take loans from France, their primary ally, and Germany. And uh, they can't pay it back. Like, it, it's, it's a financial catastrophe. The Japanese are actually in a worse position when it comes to bankruptcy. 
and the Russians could last longer because they can simply just take more loans. But this is definitely a terrible situation for the Russian Empire. Um, for lack of better words, the war is seen as a victory for the Japanese. So the Japanese are victorious over the Russians. And uh, that sparks a lot in the empire. Because let's look at it. An Asian nation just defeated Russia. Russia's Not a multi- one fleet. Exactly. Not just one fleet, but uh, a couple. Yeah. And Russia's a multinational state. So you got to think of the non-Russians that make up 50% of this empire. They're looking at this. They're like... Asians, these Japanese just defeated the Russians. So Russia is losing a lot of face in front of its people and across the globe. And uh, you're actually going to see a lot of other people spring up from this. Like, for example, the famous Sun Yat-sen. He notably took interest from the defeat of the Russians as kind of this booming moment for Asians in general. And in places like, you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, India, the Philippines, and even the Ottomans, they, they kind of saw this as like, okay, we're, we're getting back at the, the white Europeans, like at the colonial empires here. So there's a lot of anti-colonialism going on. And uh, you can imagine a lot of the people within the Russian Empire, they started to really fight back against the Russification. Because, I mean, they were disenfranchised groups and these so-called invincible Russians lost. So it really hurt the Tsar regime's face. It was very humiliating. And uh, it was particularly humiliating to the, uh, the Romanov family because the Tsar drove him into this war not for the best of reasons. And it uh, just adds to the domestic unrest. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, the morale has gone down. And now you got all these soldiers and sailors, they got to come back home. And what happens is mutinies skyrocket. So in 1905, going all the way over to 1906, there's like 400 mutinies that break out amongst the, uh, the Russian army and the Navy. And I don't want to go through all of them. There's actually a lot of famous ones. But Lieutenant Commander Schmidt of a destroyer squadron, he makes a speech in October uh, of 1905 in Sevastopol. And he's just urging citizens to protest against their government. And there's like a mass amount of violence that breaks out. Schmidt steals a bunch of ships. So he creates his own little fleet. And he basically forms his own rebellion. He's got like 8,000 men with him. And uh, they actually, oh they, they fight the Black Sea Fleet. Well, fight. Let's say, There's a skirmish against the Black Sea Fleet a little bit. And uh, yeah, uh, they get put down, obviously, because they weren't going to beat them. But it's pretty insane. Uh, naval mutinies break out in Vladivostok, in Kronstadt. Another you know, famous thing that happened is the battleship Potemkin. Uh, it mutinies in June, and um, the mutineers of that battleship, they end up surrendering in Romania, and not to go too deep into it, but the Romanian government tries to steal the ship. It's kind of a funny story. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so these Russians, they get interned. No, we found it. It was <laughs> but, just there. But li- literally, literally, Romania just tried to steal a battleship, which is hilarious. I just paint it. The li- they won't notice. Yeah. And uh, then we come up, so that, I would call that a short-term trigger. So the Russo-Japanese War, is a, it's a short-term trigger that gets everybody riled up. The second one... Yeah, I, I, all of a sudden we have the, the military, like, um, you know, elements within the military, like, muted... Uh, Mutinying? That's terrible English. Right, like, you know, rebelling against the authority. Uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, hey, this... uh, it's not a good... Uh, 
not a good spot for the state to be in. Like all of a sudden you have your military being uh, disenfranchised as well. Uh, and coming home, telling everybody what happened and getting everybody riled mm-hmm. up. Cause you know what, what's worse than a bunch of peasants and urban workers revolting people who are trained to fight coming home and helping <laughs> like that's, that's joining, a joining with the, yeah, with yeah. the the university students and the working class and the oh yeah oh no it, it wasn't good in the military either. Uh, something's got to change and uh, then the second trigger which I think is the most known thing I think even people know more about this event than the actual revolution itself uh, it's infamously known as Bloody Sunday not the same one that happens in uh, Ireland by the way <laughs> which makes this more confusing. But a uh, a priest named Gorgi Gaypon. I just thought of that terrible song. Yeah, I know. Uh, how long? God. How long? Bono. <laughs> Sorry, no, that's, I don't like Bono. So there's a priest named uh, Gorgi Gaypon, and he organizes this thing called the Assembly of the Russian Factory and Millworks of the City of Saint Petersburg, which is a terribly long title. And I'm trying to see if I have the Russian version. Which, anyways, I don't have it. Uh, What's unique about this guy is the emphasis of his movement is extremely pro-Tsar. He's seeking social change, but within the Tsar regime. So they're a hundred, they're loyal. He is legitimately loyal to the regime. At the same time, in 1903, uh, he's receiving some financial backing from a guy called Sergei Zubatov, who's the head of um, a socialist police force. Zubatov is a guy who's kind of, he wants like a social monarchy. So they have kind of a, the same wants and needs. And he finds Gapon's little network a useful thing for his cause. So he's another player that's doing something on the side. Uh, Gapon's assembly is also allegedly funded, and this perked my interest when I was doing the script, by Colonel Akashi Motijiro of the Japanese Secret Intelligence Services. Now, Motijiro had established this intricate espionage network prior to the Russo-Japanese War in all major European cities. And he had a pretty big budget to do so. His purpose was to basically just raise anti-Russian sentiment everywhere he went. But while in Russia, like in Saint, within St. Petersburg, he uh, created a espionage network that was watching all the naval movements, all the like movement of men on the trains and such, so that he could tell the uh, Japanese military what to expect and when to expect reinforcements. Because the Japanese, during the Russo-Japanese War, they have an unbelievable advantage in intelligence over the Russians. It's pretty incredible. Which they needed because they were outnumbered by a lot. Now, in December of 1904, four workers at a ironworks in St. Petersburg called the Putilov Ironworks, they're fired for being members of this assembly. And uh, this prompts the entire workforce to go on strike in January. The plant manager, he refuses to rehire the workers. And this just causes an even bigger thing where 150,000 workers from like almost 400 factories to start striking in solidarity. And uh, in mid-January, St. Petersburg now has no electricity. The newspapers and public areas are all closed. Like, it's really going to shit. Now, back on January the 19th, uh, the priest, Gaypon, his assembly drafts a petition demanding better working conditions. They want, you know, fairer wages. They want eight-hour work weeks, safer conditions, and the right to establish trade unions. Eight-hour work days, right? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Yo, eight-hour work weeks. Everybody wants an eight-hour. <laughs> Yeah. 
Uh, eight hour work days. I don't think eight hour work weeks would. Uh, <laughs> I don't think the star would like that. No. Uh, and uh, he was kind of interesting. He intends to give this petition directly to the Tsar because from their point of view, they're kind of like the children and the Tsar is their father. And they think the Tsar will listen to their demands and do something about the corrupt government that really isn't representing his will, we'll call it. It's an interesting strategy. And uh, they also want things, you know, like uh, universal suffrage and civil liberties. Like, it's the same stuff over and over the same people are asking mm. for. Uh, the assembly, they plan to give this petition directly to Tsar Nicholas II because he's making an appearance at the Winter Palace. Now, the way this works, uh, kind of like today, uh, you can't just petition. You have to say your intention beforehand. So the government, you know, informs the Tsar that they intend to bring him this petition. And he even knows what the petition probably is about. Uh, but they tell him and they urge him not to receive it. And uh, actually the Tsar, he makes a huge and horrible decision to not receive it. So he leaves like a day before they're going to do this march. Unbelievable. Like the, the the dice of fate, basically. If if he had stayed, world events could have changed probably. Mm. So on January the 22nd, workers are striking. Their families of the workers. They're starting to gather at like these six strategic points within the industrial part of the city of St. Petersburg. And they're all holding religious, you know, like Bibles. And they're, they're singing God Save the Tsar all these like pro tsar hymns and stuff because like he really like they're making it known that they're with the tsar they don't want to look like they're anti uh tsar at all about three about three thousand of them led by gabon personally they begin marching towards the winter palace now they have no idea that tsar nicholas ii he's not even there he had left uh this gets a little weird and it depends on the sources you read Sources I read say that Gabon and the guys, they, they actually believe there was going to be some violence. So they put women and children kind of at the forefront. And uh, the government had orders to not let anybody onto the grounds of the Winter Palace. And in fact, that they were going to disperse like everybody who was doing this. And there's like 10,000 troops that have just been brought over to St. Petersburg for this job. Now, Whoa. yeah. So the petitioners, uh, I see where this is going. Well, obviously, the petitioners, they're going towards the Winter Palace. They're not stopping and they're pointing their hands and they're emptying their pockets to show that they're not armed. Right. So they're they're doing everything by the books, even as by today's standards, to show that they're not violent. You know, just <laughs> I don't want to make a January 6 joke. I'm not. No. Anyways, <laughs> they're not violent. But uh, the guards, obviously, they tell them to disperse. The marches, the marches, they persist to go forward. And what happens here, you know, it's he, he said, she said kind of situation. I read that some Cossacks, because it's whenever it comes to these things, it's always the Cossacks who are given like they do the bad stuff. Their cavalry units start to charge upon them. They start rattling their sabers and they start attacking people. At, at 10 a.m., bugles by these troops start to go off and they start firing their guns into the crowds. And some a lot of people are killed. I wrote about 40 people from what I can guess. There's a lot of wounded, and this is right in front of the Narvia Gate. My numbers are probably not correct. I am by no means a specialist when it comes to this part of Russian history, but I read as much as I could. Uh, petitioners all around the city, they continue their march uh, towards the Winter Palace, and it's there's even more violence. So I think like uh, more than 100 people end up getting killed. Hundreds are wounded. The city falls into looting and chaos. Thus... We call it Bloody Sunday. 
Now with this, this is kind of what and this was the like they're coming from the religious class as well. Yes. Yeah. So oh my god. So yeah, now it's led by a it, priest. The, okay, so now at this point we got the the rural uh, class. The we have the the working class. We got the educated class and elements of the military class, and now the religious class as well. Yeah, yeah. This Where, you know, like having um, reasons to dislike the the status quo. Jesus, like you just killed a bunch of women and children, like with Bibles in their hands. Not to mention the guy who's leading it is this. He's a very famous priest, by the way, by the, by this time, and uh, he could. And there is evidence to say that he was funded by some bad actors. So we don't know, but he's making it apparent that he's for the Tsar. So at least publicly, it looks like you've attacked someone that was one of your guys here. Like this doesn't make sense. Um, the events in St. Petersburg they start to explode all across the empire. So we we're seeing strikes and violence in Moscow now, Riga, Warsaw, Vilna, Kovno, everywhere in the empire, even in the Baltic provinces and such. Within January alone, like four hundred thousand are participating. Students aren't going to school. They're staging protests. The railway, all the workers are on strike now. In St. Petersburg, like, basically, you can't even use the train systems. It's all down between St. Petersburg and Moscow. And uh, the Soviet uh, Soviet begins in St. Petersburg uh, for a brief amount of time. It's a very short-lived thing where there's, like, a workers' delegate. And uh, it's headed by the Mensheviks. And uh, I don't want to go into the other it revolution. They'll pop history. up again. Yeah. yeah. But the, you know, the Bolsheviks and the, and the Mensheviks, they are doing stuff here but it's not as big as what will happen later on in 1917 by the way the bolsheviks don't really like the mensheviks and there's kind of like a, a turmoil going on with them here too uh by mid-october like two million workers are on strike no railways in russia are even operating it's it's catastrophe so tsar nicholas ii places the empire into you know what we would call i guess um martial law or just emergency yeah. rule uh, he invests all officials with these extraordinary powers to just arrest, fine, exile, and get rid of any problems, anybody. So one of the men he appoints is Dmitry Fedorovich Trepov as governor general in St. Petersburg. And on uh, February the 18th, he dismisses the other guy that uh, he had hired, Petro. And he begins a government commission headed by another guy called Envy Shilos. Shidlovsky, Shidlovsky, sorry Russians, to examine why is there so much discontent, <laughs> which would, would have been an interesting commission to head. Uh, by February the 17th, Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich is assassinated. So another uh, big boy just gets hit. And this is putting Tsar Nicholas II into a panic. So he's going to start to make concessions. On yeah, March, yeah, uh, oh, yeah. At this point, the like, majority of the population is... Uh say not very friendly with the Tsar. yeah he's grasping at straws at this point he's running out of allies so on march the 2nd the Tsar promised uh, freedom of speech and this is a verbal promise again so he's promising freedom of speech freedom of worship a reduction in the peasants redemption payments and the creation of a consultative assembly with consultative powers only prompting everybody to be even more angry because, again, they're asking for a real government, and what he's doing is just saying, oh, we'll give you some more, like, advisory roles, right? Like, it's not, it's not a government at all. 
So the uh, the strikers, they begin refusing to pay their taxes. They withdraw all their savings at the same time. It's getting worse. Uh, the commission he had started, they don't even get to do any work and they're dissolved. By late May, all of the Zemtvos, those like municipal bodies, uh, they're trying to pass resolutions demanding, again, popular representation at the national level. They just want a real government. And uh, they decide that they're going to meet the Tsar. And it's headed by uh, a close ally of his, Prince Trubeskoy, who I, I probably butchered that name, by the way. And um, so he kind of heads this thing. He talks to the Tsar on their behalf. And the Tsar finally agrees to convene an assembly of people's representatives. So you would think, okay, he's going to allow real governance. 14th of October, the famous October Manifesto is presented to the Tsar by Sergei White. And uh, it's, it's, again, it demands the same things we've been talking about, basic civil liberties, universal manhood suffrage, and the establishment of a state Duma. And with Wait, the... Can you, hmm? can you say that again? Universal manhood suffrage? Oh, universal, <laughs> universal <laughs> manhood <laughs> suffrage. So basically, My penis has the right to vote. <laughs> basically, what that means is universal suffrage, but no, women don't get the right to vote, mm. only men. <laughs> Which is... Pretty regular for the 19th century, you know? And uh, they, they want an elected state Duma, so a real political government, uh, with political parties being allowed in it. Uh, the Tsar screams at everybody for three days, and he signs it grudgingly. He doesn't want to sign it. doesn't want to, but at this point, like, you're somewhat forced. If you don't, like, the entire population is going to rise up. But historically... Real revolution. Yeah. But historically, this is the first time in history that, you know, a Tsar of Russia, he, he does something and he said he would never do this. Uh, he's going to share political power with the representatives of society. He says that again, verbally. So three new political parties are born at this time. The Octoberists, the Constitutional Democrats and the Union of the Russian People. The October Manifesto, it satisfies the liberal types. But the radicals, like, you know, the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks and, and such, uh, they don't think this is enough. And they actually yeah, want to... It's a step in the right direction. But yeah. It's not enough. Well, they, they want a revolution. So they, they're like, I, we don't care about the Duma elections. We don't even believe this is, like, even going to amount to anything. And they just want to continue their uprising. Uh, between winter of 1905 to summer of 1907, the Tsar... He still has the executive powers at hand, and he's still getting his officials to just stamp out all of these people. So, you know, these people are letting down their guard now, the worker strikes and all this, and he's basically just getting rid of them. So he's executing people of anti-government behavior. He's exiling people. He's doing whatever he has to do. Apparently, uh, my notes say, by April of 1906, 14,000 people have been executed and 75,000 have been imprisoned. So, you know, he went to work getting rid of people. Yeah. Now, he said... Again, verbally, that he was going to do all these things. He issues something that is loosely called the Russian Constitution. And the reason why I say loosely is it's not a constitution. They just use the word constitution. Uh, it's also known as the fundamental laws. And he does this in on April the 23rd, 1906. He gives himself the title of Supreme Autocrat. This meant that no law could be made without the Duma's assent, but also... It couldn't be done without the approval of the state council, half of which are appointed by the Tsar. And he also has a veto. So basically, he's created a government where he appoints half of the seats 
and they can control whatever the outcome is. And even if they, for some reason, they go against something, he has a veto. So no matter what, he is still the Tsar. He's still in charge. It's all uh, shadow. Essentially, he, yeah, he retained all his power just in a different format. Yeah. Any, any dictator, even today, there's forms of this kind of government looking like places like Latin America, for example, it's, it still exists. Uh, after uh, like three months, the Tsar, he just dissolves the Duma because uh, apparently the elections go way too far to the left for his liking. And uh, he appoints a prime minister and the prime minister is just told to crush all revolutionary remnants. So after everything is said and done, he goes against everything that he promised, even though he controlled it. So it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like he was too much of a baby to take criticism, even though he didn't have to follow the criticism. And uh, yeah. yeah. Basically, the revolution didn't achieve its actual goals, and um, the Tsar didn't do anything really to fix it. But he had saved his regime for now, but I know you know your World War I history quite more. The effects of World War I will break the camel's back. Yeah, because it doesn't sound like um, uh, anything was solved. Okay, so it's a, a, like he, he put a band-aid on... You know, yeah. a, a hemorrhaging wound exactly basically. he bought himself some time but all these uh revolutionary elements they're still in play they're, they're they quieted down a bit they were eased a little bit but you know they're biding their time for another opportunity to rise up exactly and uh well a lot i think a lot more people i know definitely if it doesn't matter i think wherever you are in the world if you're taking history Usually someone's going to teach a class on, you know, the um, the age of dictators or the, the Russian, just Russian history in general. And the Russian Revolution, of course, is famous. And it's, it's a great study of what can happen. And uh, everything that happens now in this revolution, all that unrest, it's, it's still there. It's 100% yeah. the stagnant situation. And when World War I occurs, well, people had had enough. And, well, ironically... Uh, Eric von Ludendorff just unleashes, unleashes Lenin into St. Petersburg and Lenin starts it. So, yeah. Well, the, you could say like the, the revolution really took off when the Tsar started putting himself uh, in direct military matters in World War One. You know, this guy had no military qualifications. Oh, uh, he was, but, you know, he's the Tsar and he's probably the most arrogant man in Russia at the time. I, 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 you know, I listened to Dan Carlin's podcast, and one thing I have to say about Tsar Nicholas II is, tragically, he loved his children. He was a good father, but he was a buffoon. Yeah, he, was, he was a family man. Yeah, he was a family man for sure, but he was a buffoon. And uh, the fact that he even showed his face at some, uh, some of these <laughs> to the front, like he's an idiot. He, he intended to raise morale for the men fighting in his army, and by showing himself, he decreased morale. <laughs> like... You, you don't get any lower than that. And uh, yeah, Russia does absolutely dreadfully during World War One, And um, it allows for the revolution to take place in 1917. And thus... Well, no, he, was, he, made, he created his own scapegoat. Like, he, he said he was the ultimate you know, mind yeah. in the military. Oh, one the... second? Yeah. All right, so <laughs> I'll do a hard cut edit. Yeah, uh, sorry, folks. I... My wife was putting up some wallpaper and she just completely screwed it up. So <laughs> I had to go help her. Now and you have it looks, no like wall. A it looks like a disaster. But uh, yeah, well, we, we finished up what was the revolution of 1905. Uh, 
do you have any uh, further questions, Ian? Uh, no, not, not really. Uh, I mean, it, it really does lead into, like, you can continue on right here and see, like, yeah, no wonder they're going to have the, the Red Revolution. Yeah, it's a no-brainer that the, like, the like nothing was appeased. Uh, it, it's kind like of they, they quelled it temporarily, but it's no kind of, happy. It's kind of interesting that it's in, in a lot of ways they were they were doomed at the by the mid nineteenth century because they were they were just too far back in modernity, and I, I you know they they made efforts to try and modernize, but it, it just collapsed on them. It, they were a few, basically they're a feudal system in the 19th century. It's actually it's pretty insane that they had managed to retain the empire that they had. Well, historically, they've always been essentially one of the largest empires, one of the definitely the largest landmass, uh, uh, one of the largest populations. Um, but I mean that is meaningless in an industrial age, yeah, where economy is king. But uh, stating that, you know, I'm just going to press it to the audience because this is obviously not a Pacific War topic. But uh, if you really do like us dabbling into general history or just different things, like, please let me know. You can catch me at the uh, Pacific War Channel Discord. Uh, just go check out my YouTube channel. There's a link over there on it. Uh, you can just comment anywhere on my YouTube channel. Or uh, even if you want, if you're part of the Kings and Generals Discord, just uh, find me there. Just shout out at me. Let me know what you guys want to hear more about in these audio podcasts. I'm trying to be more consistent uh, to give you guys more because I, I'm pretty surprised by the amount of downloads I've been getting lately. And I didn't put as much effort into audio stuff like I did on my YouTube channel. But since I'm doing so much podcast work for KNG, I thought uh, I should just start expanding here. And uh, a big thanks to Ian being here yeah, again. Pleasure being here. As a hostage in the hot seat. Yeah, I gotta say, I don't know too much about um, uh, European history at this time. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I write these scripts and I just want to blurt them out of my head before I move yeah, on to nice the next it's a nice break thing. in the routine. Yeah. And uh, again, this has been the Pacific War Channel, over and out. <laughs>